0: Library. <laughs>
2: Hello, and welcome to episode number 810 of the Wicked Library. As always, before we get started today, a huge thank you to our Patreon and direct supporters. You make this show possible, and we appreciate you and the wicked amount of love you send our way every month. If you enjoy this show and want to help us keep making it, you should support us on Patreon. Not only do all of our patrons get a completely ad-free show... They also get the highest quality version of the show, access to our archives with the first five seasons, official bookmarks, and depending upon the level of support for our $10 a month supporters, you get something extra special. You get access to our new show, The Private Collector. We now have three episodes of that show out. We have plenty more to come. And I'll tell you what, it just gets weirder and more dark and more fun with every new episode. So go ahead, sign up, and get access to The Private Collector, written by Aaron Vleck, starring yours truly, Nelson W. Piles, Addison Peacock, and a growing cast of characters. Sign up today at thewickedlibrary.com or at patreon.com forward slash wickedlibrary to become a friend of the Wicked Library and, of course, a friend of the librarian. We're working very hard this season to make the show sustainable for Season 9 and beyond, and, of course, we do need your help to do that. Also, a big thank you to those who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review on iTunes. Your ratings help others find the show. And, of course, we do love hearing from you and why you listen to the wicked tales we share. And a big thank you to Nicole Goodnight for giving me a little bit of help with today's story. Thank you so much to all of you for listening and supporting the show and our contributors. And remember, if you enjoy any of the stories that you hear, find the work of the authors and buy their work. It helps them keep making more. You can find links to them and their work at thewickedlibrary.com.
0: Warning. If you haven't figured out that the Wicked Library has strong themes of an adult, sometimes violent and decidedly scary nature, then by all means, keep listening. Go on. It's just that you're not going to complain about it. Oh, you can try, but you'll be scoffed at and ridiculed mercilessly by the host, the narrators, the producers, and you could bet your dangling participle, me. Go ahead, try it. You're not gonna like it one little bit, but our millions of listeners will eat it up. <laughs> and that's not hyperbole, kiddies. So there's your warning. Enjoy the show, kiddies. <laughs> by now. Sit down and relax while you can. Your librarian has taken such good care of you for seven seasons. I see no need to lighten up for season eight. Hold on to your breath, kiddies. It might just be your last. Once again, it's story time. At the wicked library
2: <laughs> kill them with kindness by kylie wordle daniel barney was a business law professor at a prestigious university he grew up with parents who entitled him to all that he pleased and conditioned in him the belief that you deserve everything happens to you he viewed the whole world as detrimental to his own aura of superiority he blamed victims for the tragedies they fell into blamed the weak and less privileged and believed they were all dealt divine justice he moved through life in a toxic stream of consciousness condemning everyone in their existence for the mere sight of such unfortunate excuses for people made him snarl. He was foul growing up and only stewed in this as he grew older and had no appreciation for anything unless he produced the results for his own personal gain. He accosted anyone who dared defy his expectations that all must be convenient for him. Daniel was blind to his own fallibility. Nobody could stand Daniel Barney. His energy was like a tornado of fire. The only people who resonated with him were his equally toxic parents, who eventually died in a car accident. Of course, Daniel hadn't a tear to shed about the ordeal, blaming his father for his old age and therefore lack of motor skill when it came to operating their vehicle that night. The insurance paid out, and he wanted for nothing but to revel in his newly inherited estate, considering an early retirement. Unfortunately, he thought, he had to complete the academic year before considering his next move. Commuting to and from the university was a major trigger for his rage, and he caused quite the commotion on the freeway nearly every day, honking and screaming at completely reasonable motorists. Daniel even deplored many of his students, and they deplored him back. After a late night of grading papers, he stopped at a deserted 24-hour superstore for some easy dinner. As he was storming out the front doors, agitated about how overpriced everything was, he shoved an elderly man. The gentleman politely turned to Daniel to apologize, Though it wasn't even the old man's fault. Since there was nobody around to put Daniel in his place, he sneered and berated the kind man. Just drop dead if you can't see where you're fucking walking. To this, the kind man simply stated, I don't appreciate your tone or your language, friend. Excuse me? Daniel scoffed. Not your damn friend, you old shit. I can use whatever fucking words I please. Language. You know, the devil is always the one you least expect, the old man responded with a smile. Is that supposed to intimidate me, geezer? Does the devil give a rat's ass how I speak to you? Daniel replied. Suddenly, the man's sweet face turned sour. His gentle eyes became menacing before sinking into the back of his skull leaving dark pits of the sockets. His hunched, frail body began to extend with the grotesque sound of cracking bones as a sharp, horrendous shriek escaped from his now-elongated mouth. His entire frame became like a towering, twisted statue of stretching flesh. Daniel's stomach writhed like nothing he'd ever felt. The horror he witnessed made everything around him dark, as if he were trapped in a void of emptiness with the monstrous old man who looked nothing even close to human now. Daniel's legs froze and he opened his mouth to scream, but nothing could escape. The wretched beast's bony fingers were now as long as the old man's forearms had been. The man's voice was no longer solemn or soothing, but demonic and putrid with fury as he howled, I will not tolerate such vile words from such a vile thing. Daniel was robbed of all senses but the awareness of warm liquid trickling down his leg as the long, terrifying and almost branch-like hand wrung his neck and lifted him from the ground. The monster pulled Daniel right up to its awful face. With skin thin enough to see its skeleton. Daniel smelled breath worse than rotting flesh as it uttered almost in a whisper, You reap what you sow, Daniel Barney. With that, the monster let its fingers loosen, snagging a clump of Daniel's hair. Daniel fell from the terrifying grasp, but there was no longer a ground beneath, only an endless pit of darkness. Daniel plummeted, reaching for a scream with all that he had, but he couldn't even find his breath anymore. He fell with a gaping mouth, wishing desperately to shriek. Daniel woke in bed, choking on his own saliva, gasping for air. He was drenched in sweat, and he had pissed the bed. He hadn't wet the bed since he was three and a half. Even then, it had only happened once, because his parents humiliated him over it. He also never remembered his dreams. That was a nightmare. Shaken, he quickly got into a cold shower to come to his senses. What a nightmare, he thought. He began to laugh at himself, attributing this to stress and nothing more. Although... If he looked back, he couldn't even remember coming home from the office last night. He shook it off as a silly dream, and went about his day like any other. When he made it to his regular coffee shop, he noticed with disdain that they had a new barista, a kid no older than 16, and this was probably his first job. With an agitated sigh, he rolled his eyes and assumed that he would be late for his first class. He briefly considered the odd dream he had last night as he approached the counter. However, the moment the teen asked politely for him to repeat the drink's size, Daniel fumed. He couldn't help but visualize strangling the kid with his apron, and snapped at him. Are you deaf? Is this all you're going to do with your life, kid? How hard is your job. The boy was taken aback and apologized with confusion for not listening the first time. Daniel shot back. Of course you kids don't listen. Your generation is nothing. You're all worthless. And he stormed away, never planning to return to that coffee shop again. That night, as he watched the evening news, a particularly shocking story caught his attention. He turned up the volume and was appalled by what the anchor was saying. Steve, only 17 years old, was last seen by co-workers leaving his shift at Brulish Coffee. A married couple discovered Steve's body next to a ravine only three blocks from his house, with his apron around his neck. Police will not release further details at this time, but informed us that this is clearly a homicide. Daniel's jaw dropped. A stinging chill made his whole body quake. This... This couldn't be true. Steve Gabin was a senior at Granger High School, preparing to graduate as valedictorian next month. Friends, family, and teachers mourn the loss of such a brilliant and dedicated young man, the anchor continued. How could this be a coincidence? he said aloud. Daniel's mind was a flurry of reflection and shock. Could his mere thought have triggered this? He immediately shook away such a ridiculous notion and turned off the TV. He quickly assumed that this Steve kid wasn't who everyone thought he was, probably into drugs or something, and got what was coming to him. The next day, Daniel was walking through his building at the university with a large hot brew from his newly found coffee shop. Another professor was rushing to a class and crashed right into him, spilling the drink down his best dress shirt. He looked up to see his least favorite colleague, Chelsea Voss, one of the psychology professors. He hated psychology and wasn't particularly fond of women either. As Chelsea frantically apologized, she suddenly noticed who she had run into and froze. Daniel was about to erupt, and thought twice for once in his life, and remembered Steve Gabbin. Don't worry about it, Chelsea, he stated flatly. She stared at him, surprised by this calmness she had never seen before.
1: Let me buy you another another coffee, Um, and a new shirt?
2: She asked, and nervously Uh. chuckled. He sighed and reassured her that it was nothing, and quickly continued on his way to his office. Once alone... He let out an angrier breath, again noticing how easily frustrated he could become. He still allowed himself to imagine beating Chelsea to death with the memory of his own mother as violent fuel. The next morning, another breaking news story caught his attention as he ate breakfast. The same anchor reported from the scene of another homicide. The woman was found beaten to death in her own home last night. When neighbors heard screams and immediately dialed 911. Police have discovered two brutal murders in the past 48 hours and are now issuing a citywide curfew, urging everyone to remain vigilant. Daniel nearly choked on his omelet as the head investigator commented, The victims have no clear connection, but we're considering the possibility that the same perpetrator attacked both Steve Gavin and Chelsea Voss due to the brutal nature of the crime scenes. That is all we can release at this time. Daniel turned off the TV like he did the other night. Only now, he trembled in fear. He hurried into work and immediately searched the web for any information he could dig up on the victims, the murders, and even the devil himself. He was now convinced that the terrifying monster was not actually a nightmare, but a warning. He had failed to heed the warning. Now, he was receiving the dues. Daniel was no religious man, but the notion of a demonic force seemed plenty plausible at this point. A knock on his office door made Daniel jump. The young administrative assistant timidly let him know that a man was here to speak with him. Detective Jack Mitchell. His stomach churned like it had the night he had encountered the evil figure. He cleared his throat, and in the most falsely polite manner he could muster, told her to let him in. Mr. Barney, my name is Detective Jack Mitchell. I'm sure you heard the news regarding one of your colleagues, Miss Voss. The detective was not one to beat around the bush. Daniel managed to appear more concerned than he was petrified. Yes, absolutely horrendous what happened to her. I saw the news this morning. Right, right. Jack stated. I'd like to ask you some questions if you don't mind, since you work with her that is. I'm going to be honest with you, Detective Mitchell, I didn't know Chelsea very well and we didn't even teach under the same department. Her office is just in an adjacent building, that's all I really know. I'm sure you'll come to find out that I'm a bit of a loner. I like to keep to myself, Daniel replied. Jack stared him down. I will be honest with you, Daniel. I know you had incidents with the two certain individuals within the past two days. Witnesses reported that you screamed at Steve Gabbin over a small misunderstanding just hours before we discovered his body. Other witnesses also reported that you interacted with Chelsea Voss hours before the 911 call was made by her neighbors and her body discovered. I find it fascinating. That the only connection we can identify between the two victims are their interactions with you, Daniel. You are well known as. I wouldn't use a benign word like loner, but a man quick to rage. Might you be able to enlighten me here? Daniel was quick to respond. My under arrest for having a temper? I don't think I have to answer such circumstantial accusations. Unless you're going to cuff me here and now. I don't want to see you again. Unless you have a warrant for my arrest, detective. He didn't have time to wonder whether or not that made him appear guilty. I will see you soon. The detective was definitely not beating around the bush. Jack Mitchell left and Daniel fled to the nearest restroom to splash water on his face and think. in the bathroom. He noticed one of the janitors stocking the paper towels. The kid almost seemed worried about him. Daniel suddenly remembered that only a few weeks ago he had yelled at the janitor for closing the bathroom to clean during one of his late nights. Ashamed of himself, Daniel decided to practice a bit of benevolence. I'm so sorry for the way I treated you that one night. I realize that you were only doing your job. I'm really must stop being so cruel to everyone. I'm afraid it's gotten me into trouble that I wouldn't be a part of if not for my reputation. The kid shrugged and said, Hey dude, don't take it personally. I bet you had your reasons. But that's just it. I had no reason. I can't believe I let myself become the bully my parents were to me. My head feels like it could explode from all the toxic waste I have stored in there. I don't even know how to undo the damages I have done. I'm just... stuck. He looked at himself in the mirror as if for the first time. He almost began to feel relief for letting it all go and coming to such a realization until he heard the kid chuckling. It was quiet at first. But as the janitor's laughter gained volume the sound was sinister finally he heard the demons laugh he turned to face the kid whose eyes were gone and his now sharp wretched teeth grimaced in a horrid grin you reap what you sow the demon reminded him Daniel darted from the bathroom and headed towards the parking lot He jumped into his car and sped away from the school, slamming his hands on the steering wheel and cursing himself. He hid away in the big empty house for days, pacing and panicking. Finally, he heard the distant sound of police sirens and stumbled into the front yard to surrender. Detective Jack Mitchell arrested Daniel Barney for the murders of Steve Gabin and Chelsea Voss. Daniel Barney was convicted of murder in the first degree. It was a particularly interesting case. It was debated whether or not the murders could be considered as heat of the passion crimes, because he was known to overreact to incidents that would barely phase anyone else. However... Every witness testimony enforced the idea that Daniel was clearly psychotic and no one could doubt that he would have premeditated such violent outrage. Many of these witnesses pointed out his obvious absence of empathy due to his lack of emotion at his own parents' funeral. The prosecution painted a caustic, dangerous picture of Daniel for the jury. His known behavior was the heavy hitter and the forensic evidence was the cherry on top. The arrest warrant came through after the university willingly gave investigators access to Daniel's work computer, where they discovered his searches done on both victims. Hair and skin cells were also found in both victims' hands, ultimately matching the DNA profile of Daniel Barney when comparison samples were retrieved from his office. Daniel vehemently defended himself, explaining that an evil force had come to him in a nightmare with a warning. He was suddenly very invested in spirituality and loving-kindness because of this. He seemed to genuinely believe that the devil had framed him. Though his defense attorney tried using this to their advantage with an insanity plea, a forensic psychologist wrote the story off as an elaborate attempt to avoid culpability. She noted that his sudden obsession with kindness proved that he understood what he had done and was desperately trying to cover his tracks. Daniel was sentenced to death. Years later, Daniel Barney had gone mad on death row, learning firsthand that the death penalty was not so simple as he had assumed it was. He had a painful awareness of his lethal injection, something he always thought to be too quick and easy for criminals. But he suffocated miserably as he saw the evil figure lurking behind the state executioner. As Daniel's heart stopped, his eyes were fixed on the demon who laughed maniacally at him. (laughs) And that was Kill Them With Kindness by Kylie Wardle. And there's an interview with the author coming up here in just a moment. But before we do that, you know, this story made me think, what would have happened if Daniel had not gone to that 24-hour store with the outrageous prices to get his food, and instead he had picked up something from HelloFresh? Now, you've heard us do uh, kind of a story ad for HelloFresh before, But I wanted to take a minute to just talk to you a little bit about my personal experience with HelloFresh. First of all, there's something for everybody. So every week you get a 20-minute meal on the classic menu for when you don't have time for more than that. And for me, because I have a full-time job and I also spend a lot of time making this show and The Lift and The Private Collector and doing a whole bunch of other stuff it, it's nice to have the opportunity to not rely on fast food and still get something that's quick and easy and good to eat. You don't have to plan your dinner. You don't have to spend money on takeout for an easy night or worry about gathering ingredients week after week. The librarian doesn't let me leave, so I stay here all the time. It's nice that I don't have to leave and can still get great food. It's simple. It's convenient. It comes right to your door in recyclable, insulated packing. And there's lots of one-pot recipes so you can cook really quick and have minimal cleanup because nobody likes to clean up after having a good meal. That's when you want to sit down, listen to the Wicked Library, read a good book, watch a good scary movie, relax. There's a ton of benefits to subscribing including helping the show out. One of the big things is We all end up in this rut where we have the same recipes that are our go-to's, the same recipes that we cook over and over again. Even if you like to cook your own stuff, go to the grocery store, pick it up, bring it home, cook it. The nice thing about HelloFresh is they have a wicked amount of great recipes. So you get out of that recipe rut. You can start cooking outside of your comfort zone by discovering new, delicious recipes in each week's box. And I mentioned I wanted to talk about my personal experience. So Whenever we started working with HelloFresh, they sent us out a meal box with three meals to try out. And I'll tell you, my favorite was the pulled pork tacos with black bean salsa. I actually mentioned it in the story that I wrote to tell you about HelloFresh in a previous episode. Not only was it simple and good, but I lived in Arizona for nine years, so I got used to having access to really good Mexican food, and it's something here in Pittsburgh that it's hard to get good, authentic Mexican food unless you go to the store, pick up all the ingredients, bring them home, and cook them yourself. And I have to say, HelloFresh did a great job. These are authentic pulled pork tacos. They're delicious. They taste like something that I would have gotten when I lived out in Arizona or if I had spent, you know, 30, 40 minutes going out to the grocery store, coming back home with the ingredients, and then another 30, 40 minutes cooking everything, chopping, dicing, the whole nine yards. With the HelloFresh plan, it's real simple. So, truly, if you enjoy good food, try out HelloFresh. Use our promo code to get $30 off your first box and also help out the show. You get $30 off your first box, just visit HelloFresh.com forward slash WickedLibrary30 and enter the promo code WickedLibrary30. All one word. HelloFresh.com forward slash WickedLibrary30 and enter Wicked Library 30 as the promo code for $30 off your first box and get some great food. And now, Kylie Wardle. And today my guest is Kylie Wardle. We've just listened to your story, Kill Them With Kindness. So I wanted to ask, what made this story one that you wanted to tell? We know that it takes a lot of work to write a good story and a cohesive piece so what drew you into this story and made it one that you really wanted to work with?
1: Well, I was working on a little book with the same figure of speech as the title. And the killing part, of course, it sparked my twisted inspiration to make a <laughs> horror story out of it. And I couldn't help myself.
2: <laughs> well, fantastic. So what was the biggest struggle with the story, uh, putting it together? How did, and, and I guess really, most importantly, how did you overcome it?
1: Well, I'm definitely a perfectionist. And I have to work with finding ease and uncertainty. And I was just having fun with this concept. Really, I was writing it for shits and giggles to start. And then it became more of a deep cautionary tale. And I had to stop nitpicking everything and just allow it to flow and be what it will. And overcoming it definitely was submitting it to the Wicked Library and putting it out there, kind of dominating that initial uncertainty, whether or not I would have been chosen i just wanted to just put it out there
2: well yeah there's a lot to that i mean to to figure out whether the piece really works you can work on it as much as you want but until somebody else reads it and kind of goes through the piece and dives into the story and connects with it we don't know whether it's going to work or not we think it does uh so putting it out there and having somebody else read it and decide whether they're going to um in, in this case produce it for audio is uh, a big step and it takes a lot of courage so Congratulations on that.
1: Well, thank you very
2: much. (laughs) How many drafts did it take for you to get uh, the story in the form that we heard today?
1: Oh, I I couldn't put a number on it because I just go (laughs) in and I change my writing constantly. I had to become unafraid of adding, eliminating, or just changing things, even if it's a majority of the story.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Now do you finish a piece and then go back and and redraft it or do you kind of edit as you work?
1: A little bit of both. I mm-hmm. kind of I think I would say I lay it all out and then I go back, I do my little nitpicking and think, "Oh, I should do this, do that, change this, add that." So, yeah, it's just a constant Transformation.
2: <laughs> yeah, and it's it's one of those things when you're writing that you know you could continue to tinker with something pretty much forever because as you continue to write and as you continue to change, you're a different writer than you were when you first created something. So I think that a lot of times we just have to release it into the wild and see what happens. Um, you're always going to look back on things for the most part, but it's a great piece and it worked really well. So I think you did a great job with it.
1: Well, excellent. Thank you so much. It's important to kind of get your stories out of your own vacuum.
2: <laughs> right, exactly. So what came first uh, for you with this story? I know you mentioned the title kind of inspired you, but when you started to work on it, was was it the characters or the situation, the setting, um, the, the plot? What was the beginning kernel of it, I guess?
1: I think it was the demonic elderly character that our um, protagonist interacts with. That one that you would least expect to be the devil. Um, and It made me think of, some of those dark cautionary fairy tales out Mm -hmm. there.
2: So what surprised you most when you started working on the story?
1: You know, I had a lot of fun bringing my criminal justice degree coursework into the story with, you know, uh, Daniel's trial, um, the forensic psychologist, that stuff that I'm studying and kind of wanting to go more into. Mm -hmm. I've also got a horror obsession. Um, (laughs) And I also played around a little bit with some philosophical philosophical, and even spiritual elements a little bit.
2: Yeah, it's, it's really neat. You pulled a lot of different things together for it, uh, which is kind of what makes it that rich tapestry of a story.
1: Yeah, like a little Frankenstein monster.
2: That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned you have a horror obsession. What is it that attracts you to writing horror in speculative fiction?
1: Well, since I was a little kid, my favorite movies were directed by Tim Burton or based upon Stephen King novels. I preferred horror and speculative reads growing up. Um, As soon as I was able to read in school, I reached for those goosebumps novels. Um, And I'm fascinated by death because it's the only thing that we as human beings can be definitely certain of in the future. Mm -hmm. Yet it's shrouded in so much mystery, too. Um, So I love honoring our mortality and having a sense of humor about this not knowing and playing with the macabre rather than avoiding it.
2: Yeah. And that's something that uh, used to be a big part of, of our culture. You know, everybody had their 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 wakes in their homes and death was kind of a constant part of life is, as recently as, you know, the late Victorian, early Edwardian area, a, area. And now it's just kind of something that we kind of push to the back. A lot of other cultures don't because it is so much a part of life and, and it is a cycle and it is something that we all have to face, but I think that a lot of times in modern society, we look at death as something, we don't want to think about that right now. We'll just uh, pretend it doesn't exist.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely, especially because when you know death's over your shoulder all the time, you have more fun and enjoy the moments you do have.
2: Absolutely. So you mentioned Burton and uh, and King. Do you have some favorite pieces from from each of them?
1: I think Needful Things and Cujo are my favorite Stephen King novels. Um, it's a bit obvious. A Tim Burton film that I love is The Nightmare Before Christmas that came around the time I was born. Mm-hmm. So I grew up watching that film, but Beetlejuice as well. Um, okay. I've got some tattoos <laughs> that reflect <laughs> my love for Tim Burton.
2: Nice. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, needful Things is such a great piece. And, and I, I think that it doesn't get as much attention as it should, but it's uh, it's one of my favorite Stephen King pieces as well. And and based on the the subject of today's story, I'm not surprised to hear you say that that's one you like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what routines do you have or favorite rituals to kind of get you into the proper mindset when you're writing?
1: You know, I kind of just allow ideas and concepts to arise and some pique my interest enough to where I kind of let it unfold a little within me before I can really take some inspired action and know what it is I'm going for to really lay down the foundation and then I kind of just leave it for a while and then something will come up and I'll go "Ooh, I need to go do this to it and I'll add some new things but um, I like to let truly inspired ideas plant seeds and then kind of give them time and kind of allow more ideas to flow.
2: Yeah. What helps keep you focused when you're actually sitting down and writing?
1: Uh, Meditation, probably, because, you know, you got to quiet the mind a little bit once in a while rather than trying to force things out.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just let the story kind of unfold as it will, as it were. Yeah. So we mentioned Stephen King. We mentioned uh, Tim Burton. Do you have, other than the, the ones that we talked about, a book or a story that you've read that kind of changed the way that you looked at the world or your place in it doesn't necessarily have to be horror. It could be anything really.
1: Well, although these books are fictional, I'd have to say the series, a song of ice and fire by George R. R. Martin. um, I'm working on it right now. I love the historical undertones based off of the war of roses and really the way he writes it, the limited perspectives of each character that allude to an, a not completely revealed big picture. Um, but I'm also a nerd. <laughs> that's why I like it.
2: <laughs> well, you know, you you mentioned something really interesting there, which is the limited perspective of characters. And I, I think that a lot of times that's a struggle for people is to realize, oh, I got to limit my character's views so that they don't reveal that they know more than they're supposed to know.
1: Right. And each perspective from each different character is really its own story based on their disposition and what they know or don't know what's going on.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, whenever you look at it, you know, we talk a lot about a first person narrative where it's an unreliable narrator because it's just that character's viewpoint. But really, when you look at a novel or a bigger story with multiple characters, it's really what you're getting is a mix of all these unreliable narrators that are kind of playing their own little piece in the story, seeing it from only their perspective. And to, to get that whole picture, you know, you use all those characters properly and and it becomes something very interesting.
1: Right. you kind of have to take one person's perspective with a grain of salt because you don't know (laughs) where they went wrong in their narration.
2: (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're all colored by our own, our own preconceptions. And, you know, a lot of times when we, we hear people talk about, horror stories and where something disturbed them. I think that's all very personal. And it, it, a lot of times it reveals a lot more to you about the, the reader or the listener than it does about the author and the story that they're telling, because we all kind of, it's, it's always collaborative, you know, even though one person's creating and writing it, the person coming to the story also brings their own baggage with them, which gives everybody a little bit of a different take on things, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: So, what does a good story have to do to scare you? Because like I said, horror is very personal. Do you remember a specific movie or a story or maybe an audio piece that you listen to that's really disturbed you or scared you?
1: Well, when it comes to frightening me, it has to be the not knowing. So sometimes with horror films, I, I'm not always very frightened because sometimes they come off as a little predictable. Um, but I love books horror stories. They're more immersive because they play upon your imagination. Like you mentioned earlier, we bring our own dispositions into what we read and kind of project our own image and our imaginations will run wild with that. For me personally, I, I got to go to those wi- live walk through haunted attractions during Halloween time to get physically <laughs> immersed, um, to, to, really be frightened and disturbed especially when they force me to split up from my friends
2: <laughs> right right i know you said you love books so are there a book or two that you've read that um, you really wish maybe you had written
1: oh that's a great question mary shelley's frankenstein
2: ah very nice very nice what yeah, did you like most favorites. about that
1: oh you know, I don't know. I, I just loved it. I I read it. It was one of my first horror novels other than Goosebumps when I was a young kid in mm-hmm. junior high and I guess the tragedy of it all.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean it's 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 one of the defining works of the horror genre. It's kind of when you look at the genre as a whole, you can look back to, you know, Frankenstein as being one of those pieces that that really inspired uh, the direction and the path that everybody else took after uh, and being the time that it was written, it's got a lot of that subtext, a lot of those things that are known by everyone, but unspoken. And it's kind of interwoven into the into the plot. It's like a like a dark dream, really. And it's uh, it's a great piece. Anybody that has not read it should um, because it is a, a really great horror story. And, and more than that, it's it's just a great story overall.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's Classic.
2: Did you enjoy the movies as well? or?
1: Oh, yes. Uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, that film. Mm-hmm. I really loved the film. There's so many adaptations yes. of Frankenstein, of course. And even to young Frankenstein, the good comedic aspect of it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So what else are you working on these days? Are, is there, are there any other stories that you have in the works? Any other ideas that are floating around in there that you're you're putting pen to page for?
1: Well, um, most of my work before kind of getting creative consisted of research papers, (laughs) very Mm -hmm. analytical and, you know, I did some creative work in, you know, my early years in high school and such, but never really put it out there. I definitely had that fear of, you know, it not being totally understood or just not liked kind of that fear of rejection. Right. Uh, recently, just kind of thought, you know, I just got to work it and put it out there, and honor my quirks, and honor my vulnerabilities, and celebrate my differences, and hope that people like it.
2: Like I said earlier, it's it's a brave first step to to take your stories and put them out there. Um, and and one of the things that's really hard to, to deal with is the rejection, and is you know the fear of of wondering if somebody's going to like it or dislike it. People can be. Rough at times, and and what I've always kind of advised people is, you know, you're going to find your audience. You're going to find people that like what you like, and as long as you continue to move forward and to grow as an artist, you're going to get better and better at it. And you start out kind of knowing what you want and knowing what you want it to sound like and knowing what you want to create. And I think we all struggle in the beginning to to kind of hit that mark, but as you do it more and more. You're going to get closer and closer. You still have really good taste. You still know what you like, but sometimes the execution is difficult. Um, and as you work through that, you're, you're going to get better and better as time goes on. You're always going to have people that don't like what you create. That's just the nature of things. The The biggest piece of advice I always give newer authors is that you've eliminated one person who is not your audience. So you can actually feel good. You've accomplished a goal. You, you've weeded out some of the chaff, and now you're going to continue to focus on the people actually like and enjoy what you do.
1: Oh, yeah. Yep. I, you know, you got to have a sense of humor about yourself and even some of the most nastiest reviews or feedback, you can take it with a grain of salt. Maybe you can look in there for something that you can reflect upon and maybe improve on if if it helps. (laughs) Sometimes, I guess, negative reviews aren't always very helpful, but, you know, you can always try to find a silver lining.
2: So speaking of uh, listeners that like what you create, where's a good place for people that listen to today's story uh, and enjoyed it to interact with you and to give you some good feedback?
1: Well, I did not have much of a social media presence before. However, I recently it is a brand spanking new Twitter account, but they can find me at kill with Kylie there. I'll announce any Any work that's coming out, anything that I'm doing from any of my writings, if I appear on any podcasts, videos, and the like. Um, I might even share some of my weird watercolor paintings because I'm a watercolorist as well.
0: Oh, Um,
1: But yeah, um, another way they can find some of my work. I recently published a little self-helpy book. It is called To Kill Them With Kindness, Breaking the Cycle of Anything Less. Long title, shorter book. (laughs) (laughs) it's nothing too extravagant but it's readable and when sitting to protect your sanity when dealing with other human beings if that tends to be difficult so you can find that on amazon if you search my name or the title um and right now i'm just working on other fun writing projects i got two rough screenplays now while i study psychology um, and i also like to write goofy sometimes terrible song parodies (laughs) very nice uh, if I whip out any more horror or speculative short stories, I definitely know who to share them with.
2: Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for taking the time today to talk. I know we're talking on a Sunday. Everybody's listening on a Tuesday or Wednesday or whenever they're listening. But, uh, you know, taking time early in the morning on a Sunday, I certainly appreciate it.
1: Oh, no problem. It was my pleasure. Thank you for speaking with me.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, NinthStory.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at Patreon.com forward slash Wicked Library. You can be a part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get wicked fun rewards like bookmarks, access to our archives, bonus stories, and more. The more generous and wicked you are, the more wicked the rewards are. Wicked Library is proud to have Booth Junkie as one of our season 8 partners. Booth Junkie is a YouTube channel dedicated to the tech of at-home professional voiceover created by the very talented Mike Delgadio. If you've ever been interested in getting into voiceover, seeing what goes into voiceover, or you just can't get enough of Mike's voice, it's a great channel to watch which you can find over at boothjunkie.com. Complete credits and full show notes including links and information from today's episode can be found on wickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for the demons to kill you with kindness.